At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 552nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. I'm here with Bill McDormand tonight for our monthly seed chat, and it is going to be an interesting chat tonight. Hello, Bill. Hello, Greg. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. I think we're living in interesting times, and uh, <laughs> let's bring the subjects that you and I love to talk about up to date yeah, and talk about too. what's going on right now. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, Bill and Belle are married. They've been, you guys have been together, what, 15 years? Yes. Yeah. Delightful. Yeah, 15 years this summer. Yeah. Yeah. Delightful couple. Belle comes up with these great things for us to share. So uh, here we go. I got about a paragraph and a half here. I'm just going to read it. And then I've got a couple things to say, and then we're going to jump in and go at it. So The global pandemic has put excessive pressure on so many of our critical systems, including seeds. Join Bill McDormand, Executive Director of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, and Greg Peterson from the Urban Farm, that's me, as we discuss the seed chain, how seeds are sourced, the current status of world seeds, who is in control, and who is stepping into their rightful place as regional and community seed stewards. What will it take for us to build community-based seed systems and how do we measure their impact? How do we reclaim this simple tradition? And what is our responsibility for moving forward, even if we don't garden or save seeds? Love that, Bell. Thank you so much. It was an interesting piece for me. So since this whole COVID thing happened, there's been multiple things that have occurred for in our culture that was like, well, I've been talking about that for years. And one of them is... And you heard me say this before, Bill, probably for the past 15 years that I've known you, that we have a three-day supply of food in any urban area. You've heard that, right? Yeah. yeah. I often say that we have a three-hour supply because what happens is, is in the, in the moment that, you know, what hits the fan, in that moment, people are going to hit the grocery stores. And we saw that happening in March with grocery stores yeah. shelves empty, Right. Right. And and they're saying globally, I just heard this yesterday, globally, canned food goods are in short supply still all over the, you know, yeah. But what didn't occur to me that should have occurred to me that probably occurred to you is that we have that same deal with seeds. And I had just never framed it out this way that there's only a three-day supply of seeds in any urban area. Well, that would be, yeah. Yeah, that would be true. In each area, there's probably, you know, a few days or weeks worth of seeds. I mean, overall, globally, the seed industry is such that they have to, you know, for new varieties and new production and things, 
and the way it's become centralized, you know, production of seeds takes place in three to five year quantities. Mm. You know, when I was active for 28 years, you know, my goal was to have a five year supply at any one time of the major varieties that I sold. That, that's how you ran a great seed company. Ah. And so, so there is this underlying supply. I'm talking really generally here. Who knows what each co- company has or whatever. I do know specifically, and we talked about this, that Don Tipping at Siskiyou Seeds ended up selling about five times as many seeds this year as he normally does, mm-hmm. three to five times. And so all of a sudden, his you know next um, three to five years looks totally different. He had a supply of them, and so each year he would only have to grow out certain of those things and replenish their supply. And he had a schedule for that. Well, that's all out the window now. He's in emergency this summer to grow enough seeds of everything that he can of the major things he sells just so his customers will have seeds next year. And I think you can take some part of that and extrapolate it out. There's a been a stress put on this normally functioning and, and sad to say in my own mind, um, move toward just in time inventory, yeah. even in seed systems. Yep. You know, so so I think people should be aware of that. And I think, you know, most gardeners who tried to order seeds this spring experienced it when, you know, across the board, seed companies were shut down because they just couldn't keep up with the orders and they closed their doors. And in fact, I, you know, and then when COVID started and if people had retail things, those are still closed in some cases. So it's really interesting, interesting, you know, we, as you said, we've been talking about this for a long time to, to actually sort of dissect how it's taking place in real time is a, is new. <laughs> right. Well, especially in time of COVID, you know, I've noticed our events online are growing significantly because people are that much more interested in where their food's coming from. Yeah. I, the way I explain that is that it, you know, I think there's this, you know, fear, it's a lot of it is fear-based mm-hmm. and, you know, is that fear or is that just rightful concern? You know, when you go to the grocery store and you see it half full, you go, wow, I wonder where my food's going to come from. And I think this caused an incredible and almost unprecedented new interest in home gardens this year. And then that in turn put pressure on the seed system. And so so I think, you know, people, you know, that's good thinking in a way. It's a shame that it has to happen all at once. But the way I explain it is that, you know, it's more like all the other noise in our lives was gone. Right. And we could really just look around and see our lives for what they are. We have to get up. We have to eat. We have to provide, you know, certain things for ourselves. I mean, that became front and center to everybody's life. When you're sequestered at home for two months, you get a lot more time to think about those kinds of things. And so the normal, oh, my, you know, sports and concerts and conventions and all the other things we do as modern creatures were gone. So... We got down into the into the basics. Yeah. So before we started, you know, the the event tonight, you were talking about a, a global agriculture move by big ag to take over. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the people that come that have come in the last fifteen years or so to our seed schools and and uh, the people that have awakened somewhat, the, you know, I'm talking, bless all of you out there that are starting your own seed libraries or, or running one or a small seed company or have finally awakened to the fact that getting your seeds from your community is way more powerful and important 
than ordering them, finding the right catalog to order yeah. them from. You know, we know from some of the lectures that you and I have done, we had Dr. Bradley Tonneson on explaining epigenetics, which, mm-hmm. you know, gives us a, a scientific explanation of why the seeds we save in our own yards are actually different and start to adapt, you know, to the conditions. Even in one year, we can save seeds that are different than the seeds that we bought from somewhere else. And so those that's the kind of building of diversity and resilience back into our gardening that we really need to do. And so thank you to everybody, you know, that's come around and understood that. What I find myself losing track of as I focus on that, and again, Craig, you and I were talking about this, we're, we're in our tunnels focusing on our these sorts of things because we know how important they are. Mm-hmm. We lose sight of that bigger picture. And while we've all been sequestering ourselves and not paying as much attention to global affairs, boy, the late-stage monopoly capital part of the seed system has been in full gear. And they've been working with the United Nations. There's now a global food conference. World Food Conference, I think they're calling it, um, might be in New York this fall. I don't know. It may be put off a bit, but it's being planned. And that it hopes to bring together a newly revamped CGAR system. The CGAR system is the research and seed bank part of the global food system. They're the 11 largest seed banks that then back up their seeds at Svalbard, you know, the Doomsday Seed Vault up in Norway. That's all part of this huge global system just you know, that to save the world's diversity because of industrial agriculture. And it's owned and controlled by industrial agriculture, so yeah. to speak. And it's it's been done under the guise of having lots of different countries involved in uh, name of the public good. But um, it's been drifting more and more toward corporate focus. Yes, and um, the uh, think. And then we've had the merger, you know, in the last couple of years of Monsanto, DuPont, Syngenta, Dow, Bear and BASF into three companies. They now own 60% of the world's proprietary seeds, they call it. And yeah. so what they're doing is that even though they made a signed a treaty, many of the uh, 147 nations have, to share in the proceeds that they've been getting from uh, the varieties that they've created that originally came from indigenous farmers all over the world, Mm-hmm. Even though they made, they've signed a treaty to share the resources with those indigenous farmers and to respect their rights and to um, uh, negotiate with them before they get new material, they've largely abandoned that. And this is my own opinion. I went to Rome and sat in on the eighth governing session of the treaty, and I could be schooled, and so I'm always open-minded. It's a huge and complicated thing. But mm-hmm. by and large, those guys are now going to implement what's known as a um, a digital, a world food digital council, which will have um, control and, and map out rules between the nations so that they can finish digitizing the world's uh, DNA from seeds and medicinal plants so that they don't really even have to go back and get seeds anymore. They think that they can create new varieties if they just know the genetic sequences and that this is the future of agriculture. So we're going to have a World Food Council. It's going to, uh, its research will be done by corporate-dominated research for a new, what they're calling, this is great, with quotes around a climate-smart agriculture. They're going to use drones and weather satellites and, and pinpoint applications of herbicides and fertilizers. 
to create a new industrial agriculture that is climate smart. And then to keep it rolling, which any agriculture needs, is new diversity, new varieties. They'll do that with their own new world digital food network where they now have all the DNA available to them. And this is their vision, and this is what they're, they're going for. So when you're sitting at home and you're wondering about seeds, it's probably a good idea to at least keep a little bit of this in mind as the background because it is starting to affect even the companies that we buy seeds from. So, Yeah. Well, you know, as you were talking about that, the one focused sidedness of what you were just sharing about reminded me of what Toby used to say, Toby Hemingway. He used to say, uh, nature always bats last. <laughs> yeah. Nature is always going to win. So when I look at that ridiculous roller coaster, techno roller coaster that you just spoke about, it's like, yeah, okay, good. So that'll work until it doesn't work and nature's going to win. Well, you know, if I were teaching third grade science or eighth grade science, you know, and I was using their words, you would have to say that industrial agriculture itself, in the face of what we're, you know, in yep. the face of the instability, political instability and climate change, mm-hmm. is climate stupid. The entity itself doesn't work. So renaming it climate smart is like <laughs> 1984. It's just this incredible, yeah. you know, wow, how do you do that? You know, and you're right. It'll work clear up until it doesn't. I was at a conference in Sun Valley, Idaho around resilience, and they had some of the top hedge fund managers and corporate investors and then corporations around the world, including IBM, which had just purchased the Weather Channel so that they can uh, deliver, they can have Watson deliver, you know, personal weather data to everybody at Mm -hmm. some point. That's one of, that's how they're reacting to climate change, you know, so they've got all these people together and they were talking about, you know, collectively, and I read this on Bloomberg a few days ago, there's over a trillion dollars in investment capital on the sidelines right now, looking for places to take advantage of and make a profit on climate change. That's how they're, they call it dry powder. We got a trillion dollars of dry powder out there getting ready to invest. And so I'm at this conference. I'm the seat guy. Nobody really is paying attention because what we do is so small and under the radar or whatever. But I raised my hand. I got, I was a participant. So I got to raise my hand and I asked a question. And my question was, I love this. I said, well, what if a trillion dollars isn't enough <laughs> to save us from climate change? What if that doesn't work? They're going, what do you mean it doesn't work? Well, what if it doesn't work? <laughs> what that means is that all of what you guys are doing is meaningless on some level. It may help here and there a little bit and save some lives here and there, but overall, your whole system, especially the agriculture one, looks like it's heading for a train wreck, you know? That's what Michael Brownlee would say. Yeah. Well, you know, from Daniel Quinn, you know, I've read everything from from Quinn. Uh, You know, we're we're a train going over the edge. What are we going to do about it? You know. Yeah. Um, Well, so yeah, go ahead. Well, I was I was going to transition to happy. What can we do about it? But did you have one more thing on that? Well, I've got a couple of things. This is it's not happy yet, but informed. I just sent you and the, your staff a set of links for articles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you can put those in with the when this becomes a podcast or whatever happens, so that people could have access to those articles, that you know, then you could 
if you're a student out there, you want to study this, or this is you have more time than you've ever had, and you want to deepen your knowledge of these things. I put some pretty powerful and important uh, notes. I don't know of any other list that would get you into these kinds of things quite as clearly or quickly as the links that I've given. And and some of those came about because I was in Rome. I tapped into the rest of the world. There's some great organizations out there working on these sorts of things. And if you'll do those links, you can be up and running around some of the things and fill in some of the data around yeah. what I've been trying to uh, generalize tonight. So cool. we didn't know the idea wasn't to scare anybody or whatever. And there, you know, as you and I always talk about the, the great thing about us talking about it is that we have a path. We know right. what to do. Yeah. We don't have to lose sleep tonight. I'm going to get up tomorrow, harvest three different grains, clean two of them. You know, I'm part of the uh, uh, regional grain uh, heritage and ancient grain program because mm-hmm. we're trying to find grains to grow all over the Rocky Mountain West. You know, I've got heirloom seeds to plant and get my garden ready. I mean, we're all working on it. And that is the most important thing. You know, if we're facing a global industrial food system that's going down, it's high time we start working on our own. And that has to be built from the bottom up with everybody taking part in it. And we know that's true about seeds and diversity. So, yeah, it's kind of fun to know that we're at the center of the storm, but we've got stuff to work on. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm just posting these in the chat box as as we're speaking as well. Thank you very much. Great. Absolutely. Rebecca says, happy question mark, save seeds and share them. They will bring you and others joy. Isn't that the case? One of my heroes. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> when we, uh, you know, when we do a great American seed up and have three, 400 people in a room scooping seeds, the energy is mind bending. And yes. so, yeah, seeds definitely make people happy. And you know, we're all committed to teaching people how to save them and how to grow them better. And If I may, I'd like to just fill in a little bit from a gardener's perspective Perfect. about reaching out to get their seeds. I still, it's got to be 98% of the seeds that gardeners in the United States use, they buy. Yep. And I'm not a fan of that anymore, unless you're buying from a local seed company that's growing the seeds right there and you know them and you can talk to them and there are a few you know those are starting to come about this is what we had maybe at the turn of the uh, 20th century all over the world there were local seed sources whether they were companies or collectives or it was just a barter and share system with the farmers and gardeners around you people got their seeds locally and that's what you should that's the part of the system you should really really um, try to support you know, I think of a quote that Joy, Joy Houch, she's the director of Native Seed Search, said one time in one of our seed schools. She said, when you select your seeds, you are selecting an entire agricultural industry that's behind that, a whole way of looking at how seeds and foods are produced. And so if you get your seeds in a packet from an industrial source, you are supporting the other side of that, the industrial side of it. And I know, you know, for most of my seed life, um, I thought the companies that I picked out that I was buying from, they're all good and we're all supporting each other. But, you know, what I want to point out is that that's starting to change. And it's starting to change most radically with certified organic seeds of all places. And I was shocked, and you may have heard me say this before, when I looked in the Johnny Selected Seed Catalog, 
recently, and more than 40% of the lettuce varieties in there, and most of, not all of those are certified organic seeds, are now patented, utility mm-hmm. patented. That means that you're not buying the seeds, you're renting them. Uh, the language is incredible around what you can do and can't do if you get your seeds like that. I've got a little pair, uh, little sentence here. It says, when farmers purchase seeds from a company, they are leasing them for that year. There are restrictions declaring no saving, no sharing, no breeding, no researching, or no planting next year. That's what happens with those seeds. And yeah. so that patents are part of that industrial system. This is how this global monopoly is rolling itself out around the world. They've got this rather delusional idea that innovation only comes when it's privatized and you give somebody the profit motive to make something new. And when you look at seeds and how we've created this whole beautiful seed system over 10,000 years, all of humanity, and all of it was free and open source in the community, you know, and shared to do that, to come along now in the 21st century and say, oh, no way we can have innovation unless you allow us to patent not only our seeds, but yours. And so just think about that when you buy your certified organic seeds next time. Please ask if they are patented. And where that ties back into this discussion is that a good friend of mine in Idaho over the last 20 years became one of Johnny's selected seeds, um, seed growers. He went back to school. He, he studied under John Navazio at Prescott College and then started growing. And he's got about 200 acres in southern Idaho and started growing under contract for Johnny's. And as he said, it got kind of weird toward the end because the contracts he got no longer had the names of the varieties anymore. There were only numbers. It's, it's like the company crossed this threshold and they didn't want him to be involved in the story of where the seeds came from or their names anymore. They just had numbers on them. And so his job was under contract to increase the, you know, that number and then send them back. Well, one year, and this was a few years ago when he came to our seed school to talk, he said, drop me like a rock. And I said, what do you mean? He said, they, Johnny's dropped me. No more contracts for growing seeds. He's one of the best organic seed growers in the country for Johnny's gone. I said, well, what happened? He goes, China. They're getting their uh, contracts are in China now for certified organic seeds. And so I don't know how much of Johnny's seeds are that way. I know that 40% of their lettuces now are patented. I do know that as of two years ago, they were a $60 million company. Johnny's is? Um, Johnny's is a $60 million wow. giant. You know, to give that some perspective to that, maybe the company that sells the second most amount of certified organic seeds, especially to market farmers and gardeners throughout the country, at the time was high mowing. And Tom Stearns, who's the one who told me that Johnny's was a $60 million company, said, I'm a $6 million company. Wow. And so, you know, and then gardeners know that if they tried to buy their seeds from Johnny's this spring, for I'm guessing, but it was seemed to me about a month, home gardeners were not able to buy seeds. They were shut down to home gardeners. And if you live in the Mountain West where I grew up, you know, you lose a month in getting your seeds and you've lost your season. Mm-hmm. Right. But they did that because they could only supply their market farmers because of this run on seeds. And so I'm bringing this all back around to where we are today. You know, you may think that you can just buy your seeds, but we're seeing stresses in this system, both in that um, even the organic seed systems becoming industrialized and that the stress of this, you know, panic buying has made it clear that many companies just can't keep up with that. 
at the time that we need our seeds most. So call out to understand that what we're saying is that we're nobody should, you know, freak out, but let's carefully and quietly and deliberately, you know, pick up and start growing and saving some more of our own seeds. That would be the message that I hope comes out at tonight. That's really the bottom line is grow and save your own, right? And share. And share them. Well, as we, yeah, as we talked about, that's, that is a corollary. You can't grow and save your own seeds without having too many of them. It's, right? a, it's such a productive system that you have to look around. You, either that or you feel real guilty. You know, so get rid of the guilt and start sharing. Get to know your neighborhood. Start trading for them. Join your local seed library. If you don't have one, go to seedlibraries.net. You can tap into Rebecca Newburn, who made the comment earlier tonight. You can find your sister seed libraries. You can get instructions on how to. They're doing a wonderful class coming up here in August on seed saving in a time of crisis with actual practical things to do. It's just fabulous. So, yeah. Nice. Rebecca says, we are doing a Grow a Row Seed Steward program, inviting people to save and share seed. Uh, Susie says, has anyone gotten the unsolicited seeds from China? We did a little bit of research Ooh. on that. What did you come up with on that? Well, I did. You know, I, I posted on the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance Facebook page the links to the New York Times article, mm-hmm. which really didn't have much information. And I think whatever's happening, we're still too early into this to know much. Nobody knows where they're coming from. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows what the seeds are. So it's kind of, it's one of those mysteries. Yeah. It's certainly captured the imagination of social media. I'll, I'll give it that. Yeah. Hey, Rebecca, Alex in the chat room is asking for information on the August class on seed saving in the time of crisis. Can you uh, drop that in the chat box? Cool. Um, at Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, we're doing a seed school starting in October, I believe. I'll look at the first date. September 17th, I believe, is the first date. We're gonna, it'll be a weekly course. And we'll, we'll do get. what we seed saving normally do. Right? Well, yeah, we're using, we got grant money to do a seed school for farmers, but we're calling it a seed school for farmers and gardeners. And so we're targeting smaller, you know, market gardeners and farmers. Mm-hmm. So that's always been our specialty. But I think a lot of the basics of what we talk about in our seed schools, which are the reasons why we need to do this, and some of the history of how the seed system works around you so that you can become a really great seed citizen, those things uh, apply to all, everyone who wants to save seeds. So that'll be the core of it. We're going to go into grains. It'll be a really great thing. And I'll put, I'll make sure Greg gets a link to that also. Nice. I do. So let's let's jump into. You said a couple of curious things. Let's jump into like really what we can do to make great change. And I wanna I wanna tell a story about the Great American Seed Up. And this is an event that Kari Spencer, Bill, Bill McDormand, Bell Star, and I created about six years ago. And it started when I attended in uh, July June of 2011 Seed School in Tucson. And Bill and I had a conversation and it kind of went like this. Hey, Bill, there's no seed banks in Phoenix. What can we do about that? So we started brainstorming. And before long, I'd purchased a 25 cubic foot freezer, which is the biggest non-commercial freezer you can buy, and about $2,500 worth of bulk seed. And I stuck the seed in the freezer. Like, okay, now it's fixed. But then pretty pretty quickly after that, we realized... 
uh, I realized that, no, it's not really fixed. And so when Bill and Bell and I were, ha- we were uh, having a conversation one day, and it took us about 15 minutes to come up with this idea called the Great American Seed Up. And basically, you can go to greatamericanseedup.org and find out more about it. Basically, it, the concept is, is that we run this great big bazaar of seeds. There's uh, usually about 100 different varieties of seeds in buckets with uh, business cards that explain what that variety is and zippy bags for people to scoop their seeds into. They pay a ticket price of $7.50. They get in the door and then they get to scoop to their heart's content. And the scoops of seeds on a honor basis, because they, they walk up to the bucket and they'll scoop a scoop of seeds, is between 75 cents and, and $2. And the scoops are designed to be three to 10 times the amount of seeds you would get in a normal packet of seeds. So that's the Great American Seed Up. And that came out of a conversation that we were having of what if, you remember this, Bill, what if there were 10,000 seed banks in Phoenix? And yeah, I re- I remember. And that was the idea is, you know, many, you know, individual or community little, you know, sources of seed. Right. So uh, Heather says, give me, give me, give me. So one of the things, obviously, this year, we can't do a great American seed up with, you know, 800 people over the course of two days in a big room. So we're working on that. We've created over the past four weeks, we've created a seed up in a box so that you can actually do a seed up in your neighborhood for your community, for your church, for your school. And we'll give you all the directions on how to do it. And we'll have, you know, very well-priced seeds that you can then teach people to grow and share. I wanted to share all that. And then I want to kind of go back to Bill. How do we, so this is one step toward building a resilient local seed economy. How do we make the next step, which is getting all of our seeds locally? Because, you know, we, with the amount of seeds that we move into people's freezers, we can't do it. You know, we, we don't have those supplies locally. So what's the story? How do we make those things happen so that we can actually get enough seeds locally? Wow. I, you know, you know, realistically, we're probably going to have to have a disruption you know, in the other supplies. I, you know, I'm just thinking about the behaviors that I'm observing. You know, once yeah. people wake up a bit and they realize they can't get their seeds, they start looking around and start, re, you know, evaluating, you know, their local sources. And so that's the real, you know, that it probably won't happen on a large scale until that happens. However, you know, what we've seen and, and is that communities, each community seems to have their own answer to that. We're seeing unbelievable creativity and how people are coming together in seed exchanges, you know, that happen one or two or three times a year in regions. I mean, when I was in Siberia in 1989, everybody got their seeds at one event every year. It was in the fall and it was a big potluck dinner and mm-hmm. uh, everybody brought all the seeds they had saved and they traded and got the seeds they needed. And a whole, the whole community sat around and ate the whole evening and drank and mm-hmm. told stories about the seeds. And so it was just really, you know, so, so, you know, it can be as simple as a seed exchange. You know, the problem with those, as I like to say, is that, you know, if you move to town the day after the seed exchange, you have to wait till next year. And so that's kind of along those ideas that let's have a community, a more permanent community place that acts as a seed exchange. And that's the idea behind seed libraries, that we have a place where we can leave our seeds once we grow them. We want mm-hmm. to donate back twice as many as that we that somebody gave us originally to help build our community resources. 
and we'll leave those at a seed library, and then other people can come in, and whenever they need to, they can check them out, learn how to grow them, usually with the educational resources you get out of the library itself. And when you've got them, then you check yours back in. And, you know, those two simple structures could actually do it. And then how they're implemented and in what, you know, relationship to each other is where the real fun comes in because we're seeing, you know, I I think Rebecca would echo this, at least this is what we had learned early on in this, is that every single seed library was different, being run differently. Some were Mm -hmm. top-down, more controlled. They didn't want to allow seeds in unless they knew they were really good. Others were like total anarchic, you know, grassroots, bring anything you want in here and just so you tell the story about it because people might want that. Your seeds don't have to breed true. If you know what they are, though, maybe you want to go on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and plant something wild. But it's all our seeds, and they're all starting to be adapted to where we are. They're part of our community again. That's what makes it, that's the most important part of it. Yeah. So Rebecca just, she says, indeed, Rebecca just said, talk about the One Million Seed Savers Project. Get people to start saving seeds through One Seed, One Community Project. That link is in the in the chat room. Great. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just that if you take that idea and think about it long enough, you end up with a million seed savers. Right. That was an idea that was inspired by the millions against Monsanto. Yeah. You know, and one year they had hundreds of thousands of people marching against Monsanto yeah. around the world. And and I went, Oh, why are we marching against things? Why don't we march for something? Yep. Yeah. The Million Seed Saver March. Wouldn't that be cool? Think about how that would change politics and everything if we had a million seed savers. And then once we started thinking about it more, we realized that not only is that an exciting goal, it really is the only answer. If diversity is what we really need to build a resilient food system in the face of change, and we know that, that's a biological certainty. The more diversity you have, the more resilience you have. And the only way to get diversity is to get more people growing seeds. It has to be grassroots. There have to be millions of us if we're really going to make it work now. So that's what makes it so exciting. Not only can you go home and work on this, you're automatically hooked into one of the most amazing movements in human history in the face of climate change. Wow, how cool is that? Right, yeah. I'm going to jump over to the questions real quick. So Lori Bennett says, unrequested seeds from China. Yes, a friend of mine subscribes to the local seed library online here in Portland and got a packet lab. She's researching how to send them to the Department of Ag. Definitely, uh, she says, unless you want them sent elsewhere. No, those all go to the Department of Ag for sure. Any thoughts on that, Bill? Well, yeah, until you know what it is. I mean, it could have anthrax in it for all we know. You know, if you, if, whenever you get a package, you don't know where it came from. You should probably be really careful or critical these days. And the one thing I'd like to point out on social media is that while our hackles are up about seeds coming from China, what we should really be worried about are the certified organic patented seeds that are in our favorite catalogs that are being contract grown in China. That's that's Mm -hmm. the real danger that's going on. And nobody's even talking about that. There you go. Not Terry, I'm not quite sure the question in this one. Last year, Terry says, last year I saved Armenian cucumber seeds striped and plain. This year I planted them separately to see what would happen. The plain seeds produced all plain cucumbers. The striped seeds have produced striped cucumbers ex- all except two. There have been many, many cucumbers. Well, there's that abundance, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah, pretty so cool. Did, 
So they grew grew them separately, or they originally grew together. Yeah, they were, you know, obviously originally grew together, and then he planted them right. them separately. That's in Maricopa. Well, what Joseph Lachos would say is, which ones taste better? All <laughs> uh, right. That's way more important than which, whether they have stripes or not. But if that's your favorite, if you like ones without stripes, then you could save those seeds and plant them out and, you know, and not plant any of the others while you're doing it. I don't know the correlation, the dominant and recessive traits around stripes or no stripes. And so I can't, and I've never grown them that way, but that might be how you proceed. There are some really good seed breeding PDFs on the Organic Seed Alliance website, and they're free. You have to give them your email address, but it's they're a great organization and it's worth it. Nice. But you might find one on the QQ birds, QQ birdus, which is that family, and that may give you some insights into what's going on. So Susan from Charlotte, North Carolina, this sounds fun. She says elephant garlic comes up randomly around my farm. I believe the previous owners grew garlic. Meanwhile, I harvested the garlic and noticed three or four very small cloves beneath the paper sheathing and attached to the root systems. Could I plant these tiny cloves? What do you know about them? Wow. You know, not enough information to make a definitive. Um, my default in those cases always is to plant and see. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Don't plant them all if you want to save some of them, but you might try it as an experiment. Elephant garlic is not actually a garlic. Elephant garlic's a leek. You know, really? if you just want to talk about it botanically or whatever, I, I believe so. I believe it's a leek. It's not really a garlic. And so it's been, you know, bred, for, you know, selected for flavor and for to look, you know, like garlic or whatever. But it, it comes out of a little bit different part of that whole onion family. And so mm-hmm. and we know that that whole family is somewhat promiscuous. And things do change. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that you could grow whole fields of things and walk out and find new things happening in it from yeah. time to time. That, you know, it's not a real uniform crop. And what we call garlic and onions and leeks all came out of, you know, wild plants. In, uh, Uzbekistan, there, I, and I, Ampatu, a, a great seed steward that lived in, uh, Colorado had uh, what he called garlic grass. Uh-huh. Which, oh. which was obviously more like a chives. Mm-hmm. version of it but it had the garlic flavor and so there and so you know imagine that all the way up to your elephant garlic and everything in between that represents the the width of the diversity in this family and and you know who knows what's in there and what you could find and what you could play with so i would say play with it and see what you can find that's you know that's really the bottom line with all this stuff plan it and play with it that's the easy answer i'm not a you know i'm not the most scientific or the most practice plant breeder for questions like that. So my default always is most important thing is diversity and getting seeds back into our communities and sharing them. And we can do that if we have fun and make all the mistakes we want with these things. I mean, and so let's get excited and passionate about doing that and making up our own stories and creating our own new varieties. That's that's something that we can all do tomorrow. We mm-hmm. can work on industrial level, you know, plant breeding projects that we could then scale up and grow lots of food in the cities, you know, in the farms around us. And that's going to be really important. And there are people that do that level of education really, really well. But the most important part of all of it, it's all going to go away and collapse if we don't have the seeds and don't have enough diversity in the seeds to actually make it in face of the changes that we have. So let's not lose sight of that part. And let's make it playful. <laughs> For sure. 
Jean-Marie from Vail, Arizona. She says, I would love to help with a seed up in Vail, Arizona. That's down south of Tucson, I believe. Let me know how I can make this happen. She loved the seed up in Phoenix last year. So how you make it happen is you go to greatamericanseedup.org. On the front page, there's a button. Click the button, give us your name and email address, and we will get you on that list when that uh, happens. That'll, we'll be getting data out about that in the next two to four weeks. So, so the most important concept around the seed up, I just I wanted to add this before, is that 90-plus percent of the expense in a packet of seeds when you buy one is in the packaging and the distribution system, the rack, and the deal made between the store and the wholesaler and the wholesaler and the consolidator and, the, you know, all the way up the line. It's a big industrial system usually that gets you those packets of seeds. And so the seeds are rarely more than three to five to six cents worth of what's going on as far as the cost. And so the Great American Seed Up was founded around this idea that let's not package anymore then. If that's all the expense, let's just go to farmers directly and get them and bring them into a city and let people scoop into a bucket and get their own seeds. And that way we can get more seeds to more people more cheaply. And so now that we can't, you know, put that on in a big hall like a big, you know, uh, pop-up event, we're trying to come to some sort of compromise where we just do big bags of seeds for you and yeah. you can do your own seed up. Whether you sit in a bedroom and you guys scoop them all out into individual packets or whether you have a small event and have certain people come over at different times and actually scoop their own, however that works out. But that's kind of the idea behind seed, the Great American Seed Up in a Box. We're trying to just find an efficient way to get this thing jump-started still. So. Mm-hmm. When, you know, Janice had a great idea, you know, somebody could, so we're starting the great American seed ups in a box at 10 people. So in a 10 pack for 10 people, you get 20, 25 different varieties of seeds. And she said, Greg, people can make holiday gifts out of those. You know, you could buy a 10 pack and a 10 pack is for 10 people is going to be about $150. And that includes the bags and the business cards that talk all about the seeds and the seeds and, and instructions on what to do with them. She said, you, you know, people can make holiday gifts out of these. It's like, well, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. So that's seeds for 25 different varieties. Mm-hmm. And that's an, enough seeds for 10 people at our Great American Seed Up size. You know, we have yeah. scoop sizes there. And those scoop sizes were based on getting you twice as many seeds, at least, at least, than you get in a regular package of seeds. Yeah, often it's more so, like you know, four to ten times. Right. And so what you're talking about is, you know, 250 to 750 different packets of seeds that you'll be able to get yeah. in one of these, you know, things. They're, they won't be packaged. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to. They're going to be in eggs. You're going to have to scoop them yourself. Yeah. But it's going to, you know, that's what we're trying to do is leverage that whole thing so that we can make it work for us and we make it work for the farmers that grow the seeds and then make it worth it for the people that want to put on their own mini seed up. Thank you, Bill. What have you got coming up this fall? You've got your online farmer gardener seed school that's coming up. Yeah, seed saving for farmers and gardeners too. It starts September 16th, Wednesday. 5 p.m. We're going to do it for 10 weeks. We've got an incredible line of teachers 
that are going to help us with that. Dr. Bradley Tonneson that we talked about doing epigenetics. I'm reaching out just right now to John DeVazio, who's lead breeder, one of the lead breeders at Johnny Selected Seeds, who's an old friend who has a great course. I've reached out to Steve Peters. We're just waiting for you know, confirmations on these, but this is what we're trying to do. Joseph Lofthouse has uh, dedicated some time to be on with us. We've got Don Tipping from Siskiyou Seeds. We've got Casey O'Leary from the Snake River Seed Cooperative is going to be part of that lineup. And so we'll meet for a couple of hours on Wednesdays. We'll have uh, one-on-one time with instructors and, and what we're calling cohorts. Um, the idea is over this 10 weeks is to get you really what you need to transform your life and be world-class at getting started in this. You won't be world-class ever, you know. I think the one thing I've learned about good seed people is that the older you get and the more you do it, the more humble you get about what you really know about yeah, what you're doing. Nice. But yeah. but it's nice to wade into that swamp, you know, with some confidence. And we'll we'll give you that for sure. We've been nice. doing schools now. We've got... 1,500 graduates from around the world, and so this is the way we have to do it now. There'll be Zoom. We'll have individual rooms. We're learning how to use the technology. So you can sign up for that at RockyMountainSeeds.org right now. So And it will fill up. We're not going to take that many people. So Beautiful. And we are doing Urban Farm uh, in conjunction with Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. We're doing a global seed summit in November. With uh, The backbone of it will be our seed school online. Then we'll have additional speakers uh, come in and give uh, different pieces of data and share different things. So lots going on this uh, second half of this year around seeds. It's time to go back to school. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Absolutely. All right. Anything else? I'd like to bring this back around to end it where we started and just read a little something that I – this is a a paragraph from um, the ETC group in Canada who keep their fingers on big ag and the large corporations that are um, still centralizing it more and more and more. What they say about what's happening is that between now and late 2021, three separate initiatives could converge and utterly transform the multilateral agricultural system. First, a rumored convention to be cooked up by the World Food Systems Summit could transform the old public-private partnerships into a new bilateral system between agribusiness and governments. Second, consolidation of the CGAR, this is our International Agricultural Research System, will ensure the delivery of the so-called climate-smart agriculture. And third, the International Digital Council for Food and Agriculture will entrench big data including digital DNA as the solution to everything. The summit provides the framework. CGAR is the delivery system and big data is the product. And so this is what we're facing, folks. This, this is the system that is trying to privatize and industrialize agriculture for us on the planet. And as Greg and I talked about in the beginning tonight, maybe not a good idea. I mean, we all benefit from it. And I don't want to, you know, it's not my job to be critical of it as it exists. At least that's what I've decided with my life. I think Greg and I are having way too much fun creating our own food system that is based on more historically successful ideas and more biologically intelligent ideas. 
um, so that uh, we and our children and grandchildren and their grandchildren will actually have a chance to have an abundant life. It's the permaculture vision, isn't it, Greg? It is. It is. And uh, in the early 90s, I had several things happen that were kind of pivotal for me in my life. I learned about permaculture. I started studying permaculture. I read a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. And Quinn, one of his big messages is food is free. And around that same time, 1991 or so, a friend of mine was sailing in the South Pacific. And they came back and and he knew I was into food and growing food and like that. He came back and he told me the following story. Greg, we anchored on this island. We went looking for a grocery store. The natives on the island looked at us funny and said, go pick your own. Yeah. That is, in my life, that is one of the top three or four pivotal moments for me. Wow. Growth. So, you know, food is free. Grow it. Save your seeds. There is an abundance. The other thing I say all the time is the only place on the planet that lack lives is between our ears. Because when you look at the (laughs) abundance of seeds and the abundance of apples and peaches and apricots and plums and citrus and all the stuff that I grow here at the urban farm, there is this amazing abundance. So, yeah. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, thank, thank you, you Thank it. you, everybody. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, thanks for being here, showing up. Let's see here. We had, uh, I'm just going to check here real quick, over 70 people here tonight. So thank you wow. for taking time out of your life and, and uh, hanging out with us. Spread the word. Save yep. your seats. Farm out, and we'll catch you on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.